What do we do when we're not comfortable? Are we able to sit with our own discomfort and work it through before we begin to express that to our kids? Because that's a really important step, especially when we have kids with anxiety, because they're looking for cues from us to know that they are safe and that they are competent. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's hard as a parent because I think there's that line that we kind of teeter between wanting our kids to be safe and wanting our kids to be comfortable. And sometimes those things we can get mixed up. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, and thanks so much for tuning in. Last week in episode 318, I talked to Dr. Ellie Leibowitz. Ellie, or Dr. Leibowitz, is an expert in child anxiety, and he created an innovative program that teaches parents to change their approach to help improve their children's anxiety. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to that before you tune into this one. This conversation with Ellie around changing our approach as parents to support our children's anxiety really got my wheels spinning about how the way we parent our children impacts our children's anxiety. Now, that's not to imply in any way that we cause our children's anxiety, but are there things that we can do differently if we do have a kid that tends to get anxious and tends to get nervous? I heard this quote recently, which was, the kind thing to do isn't always the most helpful. Sometimes when we're trying to be kind and keep our kids comfortable, it can actually maintain the anxiety or even increase it. So today we are exploring in a more casual way this idea that the way we approach parenting may in fact have an impact on child anxiety or maybe not. Nero Feliciano, who was my guest in episode 309 on contentment, is chatting with me today. She's a cognitive psychotherapist that specializes in anxiety, and she's also the mom of four kids. In our chat today, she and I are talking through some questions that I received from you all. If you have a child that has an anxiety disorder or a child who is neurodivergent and may have anxiety related to that, especially as it pertains to sensory sensitivities, your approach may look different. In fact, your approach is probably going to look different no matter what kind of kid you have, because we're all parenting in a way that is unique to our own families and authentic to ourselves. In this episode, I toss around the words gentle parenting, conscious parenting, intentional parenting, positive parenting. Speaking broadly, these are constructs that are not really well-defined. And because they're not all that well-defined, they're hard to measure from a research perspective. So we don't really know if one is better than the other. Honestly, I don't even really know how some of them are different from one another. In one way or another, these all refer to a type of authoritative parenting, which is that middle of the road approach, which is something we do have good solid research about. Authoritarian is the dictator style, do it because I said so, permissive is anything goes. 
So the way that I think about intentional parenting, gentle parenting, positive parenting, conscious parenting, all these different names that we're tacking on is that they're all different varieties of authoritative parenting. In general, they refer to this idea that we have to give our kids room to make decisions for themselves. We have to give them power over their own lives, but we also have to give them boundaries and we also have to set limits and we strive to be respectful in doing that. So today we're talking more about how do you set limits and boundaries and expectations while being respectful, especially if you know it's going to make your kid uncomfortable. In this chat in a row, and I are taking your questions through our lens as mothers, but also through our lens as mental health professionals. That's not meant to say that this is prescriptive in any way, shape, or form. As I always say, take what works for you and leave what doesn't. I want to thank Preptish for being a longtime sponsor of the Simple Families podcast. Preptish has been a staple in our home for many years now. It's a PDF that arrives in my inbox every week. I click it. I always scan right down to the super fast menu because that's my favorite. And I order the groceries that I'm going to need for the week, which are outlined in a very simple ingredient list. I add those to my online cart and I order groceries for delivery. At least that's what I'm doing right now in this season of life. And then when they arrive, my partner and I do the meal prep together. With the super fast menu, it takes less than an hour. Having the bulk of the cooking prepped in advance like this really sets us up for success during the week when we have less time to get the meals on the table. It has lightened my mental load in so many ways. If you want to try it out, go to preptish.com forward slash families. That's preptish.com forward slash families, and you'll get two weeks free. Without further ado, here's today's episode. Hi, Nero. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Nice to see you. Good to see you too. I'm glad to have you here today talking a little bit more about how parenting styles may impact or influence child anxiety, or maybe not. I think, I mean, certainly there are things that we can do to help a child work through anxiety, but different kids are different, right? Even as a mom of four, the things that I've done to help one child have been futile for (laughs) another child. And we have to look at the needs of the child and how they respond and figure out the best way forward. And I do think we can use research-based practices in addition to that gut feeling to determine Mm -hmm. what may be the best course of action. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons it's hard to know of the impact on our parenting is I think there are a lot of different terminology for parenting thrown around, especially among my listeners, you know, gentle parenting, intentional parenting, Mm -hmm. respectful parenting, conscious parenting, and all these things, they're, they're very similar in nature. Um, but one thing is that they're not easy to measure from a research perspective. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that lends to the variability in mm-hmm. that parent's perception of what that means, what is um, how it's going to apply to that specific child and that child's needs and their situation. So, yes, there is that component of gut feeling, but also to look at, okay, we've been trying it this way. and how has it worked? Yeah. Right. Is this the approach that we want to continue to use? Have we seen it to be effective? Is my child moving through the anxiety or are we seeing that anxiety increase? And that may be our best measure of, 
do we continue along this path or look for another way to work within this situation? Right. Because we aren't necessarily choosing a parenting style that we like, but also one that fits and lands well with our kids. Right. And and that's actually helping them. Yeah. Right. So even though maybe they appreciate a certain approach, is it actually helping them to step into the potential that they have? And certainly, are we addressing the issue rather than exacerbating it? So we have to look at that as we are choosing this parenting style, because just because they like it or it's comfortable to them doesn't mean it's serving them either. Yeah. Absolutely. So I've been thinking about this for a while, but this summer I sent my kids to camp and the first week of camp is a sailing camp. And something came up with my son that made me sort of think twice about what the quote unquote best way to handle it would be. Cause I don't really ever think there's a, there's a best way. We just mm-hmm. kind of, kind of pick one that feels right at that time. Um, but at the sailing camp, you have to do a swim test on the first day, which means you have to go out in the 65 degree Long Island Sound, tread water for two minutes and swim a certain distance. And it's horrible. Oh, it sounds terrible. I do not like cold water. (laughs) Really don't like cold water. Um, like for me, I would have been miserable doing that. And, um, the, the other part, so when they told me this, I, kind of raised an eyebrow because you have the option of wearing a life jacket for this swim test. Hmm. So I'm kind of like, what is the real value? You don't even actually have to be able to swim. Mm -hmm. You just have to be in the water for this period of time in order to pass the swim test with or without a life jacket. So I think my wheels started spinning about this sounds really uncomfortable and really not even informative about how safe a kid is in the Mm -hmm. water, unless they're just trying to test water safety. Right, right. Or resilience, you know, in those types <laughs> right. of temperatures, right? Which I think I, I would have failed. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been a big F for me. Too. <laughs> right. So yeah, I, I, so I think that I had a little bit of that doubt in my head, right? Thinking like, well, what, what is the purpose of this? Right. Um, and whenever we experience that doubt as parents, that I mean, I think our kids feel it for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so my son pretty much avoided our public town pool last year because it was so cold. And I also did, um, avoid that as well for the same reason. You could probably call that a sensory sensitivity being sensitive to the mm-hmm. cold. Um, but that's just something that we've always both had in common. So when this came up, I knew that it was going to provoke some anxiety for him. We talked about it in advance. So it wasn't kind of sprung upon him on Monday morning. And the whole way there, he was very quiet in the back seat. Um, I asked him how he was feeling. He said he was feeling nervous about the swim test. It was, you could tell it was all he could think about. Mm -hmm. He was kind of overwhelmed and consumed by it. And I said to my husband, like, do you think that we should just tell the counselors to let him out of it or like find a way to get him out of it? And I knew that my gut told me that that wasn't the right answer, but kind of my, my discomfort with witnessing his discomfort was let's just avoid it. Mm. Do you ever feel that? Of course. Of course. We don't want our kids to suffer yeah. you know, unless we really see a purpose in it. Right. And, and in that moment you had doubts about the validity of that test and mm-hmm. was it really measuring anything at all? So was the suffering pointless yeah. in that case? Right. So I think those doubts are warranted. Definitely. And I would probably be thinking the same thing. And I would be thinking, is this going to make my child sick? Because you know, I have one kid with asthma. When one person gets sick in this house, everybody gets sick. 
sticking them in cold water, I would have many different doubts. And at the same time, there would be a part of me that said, all right, this is what we signed up for. And it, my child was aware that this was going to happen at a certain point. Can I encourage them to see why this is important that they do it? So I would probably be having this conversation with myself on both sides of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those conversations with ourselves are so important. I briefly weighed the option of seeing if we could get an out and sort of get him excused from it. Um, And then I'll be honest, I I I just went and dropped him off and was kind of like, okay, have a good day. And I left, but I spent the whole day thinking about it and worrying about it. Then I went and picked him up and he was fine. He was fine. He did it. Yeah. And I think the fascinating thing that came out of this is that he is like a fish now. Mm. And I don't know if this is a growth thing from last summer, but he's going off the diving board. He's swimming in the cold public pool. He's not making a thing of it. Yeah. Um, so that I feel like even though maybe there wasn't a lot of value in the swim test per camp, that maybe there's some value in kind of working through that anxiety. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And that and that is um, the important piece of understanding anxiety, the longer we sit in those anxious places, the stronger those pathways develop in our brain, and then it becomes harder to deconstruct. So in that case with your son, I mean, or maybe it was just, hey, I could do this. And his confidence increased in that moment, right? So, And he wasn't necessarily filled with doubts that you had because you didn't share all of that with him. You let him go, and in letting in letting him go, you were also sending him the message: "Hey, you can do this. You're safe. This is safe. I wouldn't let you do something that wasn't safe." So there is confidence that they internalize, even just from the way we are going to approach that situation. But what you said is really important. What do we do when we're not comfortable? Are we able to sit with our own discomfort and work it through before we begin to express that to our kids? Because that's a really important step especially when we have kids with anxiety, because they're looking for cues from us to know that they are safe and that they are competent. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's hard as a parent, because I think there's that line that we kind of teeter between wanting our kids to be safe and wanting our kids to be comfortable. And sometimes those things we can get mixed up. Yes. Yeah, and absolutely. It's hard to say. And, and they don't always go together. Like in the case of your son's test. He was safe, but that could not have been comfortable to, right. <laughs> to be in that cold water. But it it was a moment for him that helped him develop confidence in himself and less fear of that particular situation and other situations where he would have to be in cold water. Right. So there's that potential for growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about, um, there's a few preschools that I've heard about where they will let parents stay with the child for as long as they need to. So whether that maybe is a week, the parent will come to school with the child for a week or a month or six months, they let, it's like a gentle release type atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And I think about that a lot because I know that a lot of parents do that with a first child. I think generally it's when you don't have other children, because it'd be very hard to execute if you had multiple children or if you Definitely. worked out of the home. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think about that sort of gentle release process and the the fact that those kids are really, like you said, you know, the longer you sit with that anxiety, sometimes the stronger that it gets. Have yeah. you heard about programs like this? And what do you think? I haven't heard about programs like that, but I can tell you 
just going back because now my oldest is 15 and a half to sleep training. There was a similar thought there where, you know, I read all these different books. It was my first child. You just leave them in the room and let them cry. And that didn't sit well with me. So the method that I used was a more gentle method, but it was also progressive. So, you know, there was a certain amount of time you sit in the room with that child and you're slowly moving yourself out of that room um, while you're reassuring your child with verbal cues, whatever it is, they get used to the idea. And all of a sudden, you know, they can hear you, but you're outside of the room. Um, so, but if I had sat in that room the entire time or, you know, kept picking up my child, whatever it is, one, I think it would have taken 10 times longer, which, you know, I worked through my, all my pregnancies and after I had children, I didn't have that time. But I also think it would have been much harder for that child to acclimate to a different environment had I been there the whole time. Um, and in some ways, you know, I, I wonder how it works for those programs. How long does it take? Are there ch children who never want their parent to leave? You know, or maybe it does work out for some children. And I really think it depends on the child as well. And for my my son, who came number two, um, the, it got to a certain point where even that gentle method was not um, adequate for him. We did have to leave him in a room at a certain point. Of course, I'm watching him the whole night on a video monitor, um, but he did have to cry it out, you know, at least for a few nights. And then he slept so much better and was so much happier during the day. So, you know, there was that outcome that we were focused on that enabled us to take steps that were more uncomfortable for us because we saw the result of that. Yeah. So I really do think it depends on the child. But if that child is anxious and that is their comfort, or even we can call it sometimes a crutch, um, I do think it's going to take longer in that case if there's no progressive right. um, plan to, to help them develop that independence. Yeah. Well, and I think about um, programs like that. And I mean, even just the situation that you explained and thinking about how much of our decisions and our process is influenced by our lifestyle. Mm. How many kids do you have? Mm -hmm. Do you have to work? You know, those sort of things. And which makes me think, you know, are working moms with four kids like yourself, are you less gentle, intentional, respectful than maybe a stay-at-home mom with one kid? I can tell you myself, 100% I'm less gentle and respectful <laughs> because I don't have the time. A lot of times, right. and and there are positives to that and, and also challenges to right. that as well. There are a lot of times we are running in our schedule. All four kids play field sports, so that's a whole other beast that we tackle when they're in school. And there are situations that I would love to stop right then and have a conversation with my child about it, but we don't have the time to do that. So we have to keep moving in that moment. And that may be hurtful to the child, but we don't really have a choice um, because other kids also have to get to where they need to go. I might need to get to work. We will always come back and address it later on, you know, when we have the time. But the luxury of going every day and waiting in a place so my child can get acclimated, I have really never had after the first or second child. Yeah. For the first child. And as a result, do you feel like your kids are suffering or negatively impacted by that? Or do you feel like they're building resilience? I think they're much more independent. And there is research to show 
that kids who come from families of four are more independent, they are more well-adjusted, and they are happier. I looked at that research because number four was a surprise for me. I'm like, <laughs> someone needs to reassure me about this that it's going to work out. Right. Um, and, and they are, and I think because they have to learn to do things. They don't, we don't have the time to coddle them as much, you know, which notice the word I use is coddle. And you could say gentle parent, but it can go both ways depending on the child and the issue you're dealing with. And, and for the most part, I'd say they are all quite independent and well-adjusted in situations and they trust themselves, which is interesting because that's a question that comes up. Are we in you know, and, and and I don't necessarily think of it as pushing children. I think there's a fine line between pushing and also setting boundaries that kids may be uncomfortable with, but yet are in their best interest. Um, I think kids need boundaries at this age, especially in learning how to build their own confidence in these situations. But they are. The one child I have that is a little bit more anxious, that's my fourth. That's my fourth. And we've had to figure out new ways of doing that. My oldest child had school anxiety going to school. And I remember getting called from the teacher one day and saying, oh, she's sick. She threw up. And, I, and I've known from 18 months this child throws up when she's anxious. I said, she's not sick. I'll come and get her anyway. you know. And in the mornings, we'd be going to school. And she'd say, mama, I'm, I'm going to be sick. I'm going to throw up. So what we did was I normalized it. I said, you know what? That's part of our routine, going to school. We would bring plastic bags. We'd bring wipes to clean her up. We normalized that. It lasted all of three days. And then she was over the throwing up before we were going to school. I didn't make a big deal of it, but I helped her to see we can be anxious and still do things. And support you in that moment that you are anxious and then help you to move, move on. Yes. And that is so powerful that you can handle that anxiety. Well, I've grown up with it myself. So I've had to learn to manage it in myself, which is also why it's not foreign when I see it with my kids. But I think for parents who never had anxiety and then you're faced with parenting a child who does have anxiety, it can be very um, overwhelming for sure. We're going to pause for a two minute break from today's sponsors. The first sponsor for today is Indeed. Don't you love it when you make a small change and suddenly everything becomes so much easier? That's what it's like when you start hiring with Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed is a powerful hiring partner that can help you to do it all, which is what I love the most about it. It's simple. You can find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Indeed is doing something that no other job site has done. Now with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applications matching the sponsored job description. So visit indeed.com families to start hiring now. That's indeed.com families. Indeed.com families terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The second sponsor for today is KiwiCo. School may be out, but summer break is a great opportunity for families to learn and explore together. KiwiCo delivers monthly crates full of science and art projects that are perfect for kids of all ages. You can build stomp rockets and kites. 
explore the science of trees. Every month brings a new adventure in science and art. We had a box recently where my kids turned our dining room table into an air hockey table, a real working air hockey table. It was so much fun. So make summer a new learning adventure every month with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code SIMPLE at KiwiCo.com. That's 50% off your first month at KiwiCo.com, promo code SIMPLE. There's no long-term commitment and you can pause or cancel anytime. If you're looking for something to keep your kids challenged during the summer, KiwiCo does the legwork for you. Thanks so much for supporting our sponsors. Back to my chat with Nero. So I posed this, this scenario to my listeners and I got some feedback, some questions and some scenarios from you all that I want to share today and talk through with you, Nero. Great. Okay. So here is the first one. It says, my daughter is a shy upfront personality, but gets comfortable quickly. She's mm-hmm. super picky about summer camps, mostly adult group management styles. I trust her. So if she goes off to camp for a day, we often do week-long summer camps, and comes home saying, I do not like it there, I trust her and I don't make her return. She has a good gut instinct for which adults to trust. But yesterday we went to a camp and we couldn't find the entrance. It was a few minutes of awkwardly walking into a weird hallway and then going out and around a parking lot, etc. She was ready to go. In these situations, I have to push her a little. It's normal to feel confused on the first day. It's okay to get it wrong and figure it out. So it sounds like in that latter situation, she pushed through mm-hmm. and 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 had the daughter go. What do you think? So in, in that situation, she recognizes this is not a feeling of discomfort because there's an adult who's making her uncomfortable. This is just, it's not easy. So there's a little bit of hesitancy in feeling, you know, in getting acclimated. So I think that's, that's a very, not necessarily clear for everybody, but for this woman, there's a distinction between when she allows her daughter to trust her gut feeling versus, um, this is just information we didn't have. And now that we have it, let's see how it goes to push her in that situation. Now it's interesting when you were reading that question, you know, I'm thinking too, camp is expensive. You have now paid for a whole week of camp. So you're going to forego that. Or are you actually taking steps to explore with your child? Why are you uncomfortable? What happened that day? Will you then empower her to talk to another adult that she trusts at the camp? Are you trying to point out to her, are there other things that you actually did like at the camp that may make it worth going back to? And then as a parent, are you willing to step in and discuss it with people at the camp to see if there was a misunderstanding or is there anything that the camp can do? Or are you just going to say she didn't like it there? You know, who cares? Let's trust her. We can afford to forego any refund, right? So, so different people have different options in that situation. And socioeconomics also plays into that. Now, who's going to stay with this child at mm-hmm. home? Do you have a job that you have to work now that the child is not going to camp and is going to be at home? So what the right decision is, is not right in every situation. So I, I think that's where we have to look at what are what are their needs of this family. And that also plays a part 
in helping us decide what options we have, what is the best path forward. Yeah. Because when I read this, my first instinct was campus childcare for us. Mm -hmm. And if I, my kid decided they didn't want to go and I kept them home, I would have to take a week off work and that's just not an option. Mm -hmm. So that, I I guess that kind of brings me to, and I'm not sure if I'll articulate this well, this idea that um, I think families who don't have the option to be quite so gentle Mm -hmm. um, may in fact feel like they're doing their child a disservice. That's right. And that, I mean, that concerns me, right? This idea that there's a lot of us out there that don't have the option to do that. And um, not saying that this was the wrong choice by any means. It sounds like it was the right choice for her family and she thought this through. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my son was uncomfortable and definitely would have stayed home given the option. Um, But that wasn't wasn't an option. And I think we compare, right, our situations with other people and they're not parallel situations. We can have that feeling of inadequacy as parents that we're doing a disservice to our children. But that's not the case. And we've seen and I've seen in practice, certainly there are people who, you know, take this gentle parenting and they see that their kids are still anxious and they're people who push their kids more and their kids are still anxious. Yeah, It really is a subjective experience depending on your family situation and your kids. Maybe you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take the week off work so you can stay home. So then financially, you become more stressed. And then the environment at home right. are more stressful. Is that the best decision for the child? No. So you have to think about it in terms of what is best for the child, but also for the family. And because kids take their cues from parents, what is also your piece in this? What is best for you as a parent? It is not selfish to think about that. And we do have to consider that as part of the solution. Yeah. And I think about that all the time, that this isn't Examples like this don't exist within this isolated vacuum. Something like a kid who's afraid to go to sleep alone at night. If you as a parent enjoy laying with them until they fall asleep, perfect. That's wonderful. If you as a parent lay there seething, irritated, upset every night until your kid falls asleep and you're snapping at them and it's ruining your day, then I don't think that's the right choice because it is, there are those negative implications of your shift in mood and the impact that it has on you that in the bigger picture is, is going to impact your kids and your parenting. Agreed. And it's more significant than I think people realize in terms of our own mental state and how that influences our children. Now I know for, for us, and this was something that I figured out or decided was right for our family with my first child because she did have anxiety to try new things. I would tell her um, and would want to quit early on. And swimming was one of them in, you know, very young second grade or whatever it was because it was hard for her and she didn't have a lot of friends doing it. And I said to her, look, you can quit once because I knew what the anxiety was about right? Um, I didn't deem it a situation that was unsafe for her or mentally unhealthy for whatever reason. There wasn't an aggressive coach, whatever it was. It was her anxiety. I said, you can quit. Absolutely. Once you've completed what we've paid for, right? And then at the end of it, if you decide you don't want to do it again, that's fine. I respect that. And part of that for, for me was that my kids are very privileged. They're growing up where there's not much that they don't have that they want. And I, for me, that's very a very important value for them to understand 
that once we pay for something, um, unless there really is a serious problem in that case, that's fine. Um, there is a level of commitment that I want you to understand when you decide you want to do something. Yeah. Now she swims for her high school team, you know, and mm. it's 10 years later, whatever it is. So, and it's one of the best things that has happened to her was the, her ability to swim. Yeah. Let's go into the second question. Mm -hmm. So I have a history of anxiety and panic attacks. So when I had my child, I know that avoiding the situation is the worst thing to do. But what is the best way to deal with it when your child is the hard part? My child is on the spectrum, I assume the autism spectrum from reading this, and is now 17 and has a lot of anxiety and other mental health issues. When she was young, I would try to encourage her, admittedly, bribe sometimes her to do the things that she was afraid of. Mm -hmm. And it would often work. For example, she was afraid to go down the water slide at the pool. It was not a huge one. And I promised her a toy if she did it. And when she did it once, she realized it was fun, and then she would do it all the time. It was just getting over that hurdle. But honestly, I have no idea if it what I did was right or not. She's now 17 and has so much anxiety that we've had to pull her out of school last year. Mm. She goes back in the fall. I know, such a hard situation. And you said at the beginning, mom had panic attacks herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that's also difficult, too, when you've gone through it. Because we can over-identify that your child is experiencing the same thing that you may have experienced. And, and certainly that does give us more empathy for the child. And we want that. But at the same time, we don't want to fall into the projection that the experience is the same as what we had. Right? We have to look at the child for the child's experience. And now we're dealing with a young adult, really, at 17. Um, you know, it's interesting when she said, I don't know if it was the right thing. Hey, it worked. It worked. Um, and although we don't always encourage bribes and extrinsic, extrinsic rewards, you know, we want the kids to develop intrinsic motivation. As parents, we, we most of us do that at some point. And if it, the initial um, incentive can help get over whatever the fear is, and then they can continue without the incentive, fantastic. It worked for you. But now as a 17-year-old, and certainly with, um, as we were talking about neurodiversity, right, that this mm -hmm. child is on the spectrum, there has to be more um, just thought in terms of what you can encourage. Now, school is a big one. And that's usually when I tell uh, parents, we you need to intervene with some professional help if those daily life tasks, the things that kids are required to do become very difficult, like going to school. So um, I wonder, you know, have they enlisted the support of a therapist? Is exposure therapy um, an option for this child. I have gone into high schools with students that I've worked with and done exposure therapy in that high school with the child to get them acclimated to school. So there are options to help that child. But again, approach each situation differently. You know, going to school is different than going and hanging out in a movie theater where kids may have anxiety. One certainly has more consequences if they're unable to do it. So I would say create a little bit of a hierarchy in terms of what you want to address first. And some of those other things may be taken care of in the process. Yeah. But yeah. You brought up so many important things. And I think when I read, I'm not sure if I, if I did it right or not. When I read that, I was thinking, I'm wondering if maybe she's blaming herself a little bit for this anxiety based on the decisions that she made. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you have a kid that's, especially a kid that's neurodivergent and 
often kids who are neurodiverse tend to be more likely to suffer from anxiety for a multitude of reasons. Maybe it's sensory overload, which is often huge for kids on the spectrum. Um, Maybe it's really not understanding language quite as well and not feeling like they're not as comfortable in their environment because they're not completely understanding what other people are saying and the social scenarios. There's a lot of different elements that I think can play into anxiety for neurodivergent kids Mm -hmm. and getting professional help for that, to understand that and to unpack that a little bit, I do think is super helpful. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I think so often as parents, we think we can, we can help our kids through everything and we want to be that helping hand, but sometimes we need more. Absolutely. And I think it's important for mom too, that she talks with someone to normalize that experience, to recognize, no, this is not because of decisions you made when she was five. This child um, genetically, neurologically may be different and more predisposed to this type of anxiety. I I always say, you know, when when we have anxiety, we are wired differently. We're triggered differently. Mm -hmm. I still have it as an adult. I know how to manage it now, but there are moments where, you know, I see it come back in full force. So it's something that we tend to have to live with and learn to live with and around and, and have the tools to manage it. But I think for mom too, to know, no, this is normal for this child um, is really important. And I will say this as a therapist, sometimes we say the same exact things you say as a parent. Mm-hmm. Listen to us. It just lands differently. Not, we're not the parent. <laughs> we're not the parent. So it's, um, it's, they're different it, that is so true. Like right? I think that different voice, you can say the exact same things. Another adult says the exact same things to your kids and Literally. they hear it, hear it entirely differently. That's right. That's yeah. Right. And I will say that I have absolutely bribed my kids through situations like this. Like she mentioned, you know, like I'll give you an ice cream cone if you go down that water slide and then they're going down the water slide all day. That is so familiar to me. Um, Now that kind of thing I would use in a situation that was not so super important, I guess, just to encourage them to get over that hump. And a lot of times it will work. I remember when my son was, I think he was four and he was afraid to ride a little power wheels, four wheeler at his grandparents' house. And I gave him an ice cream cone to ride it around the house once and he did it. And then he didn't get off it for the next four days. He loved it. Right. So I do think there are situations like that where we're pretty sure this isn't something that's going to be overwhelming to our kid. It's not something that's going to be traumatic to them. They might actually enjoy it. They just need a little extra motivation or encouragement. So I don't know. I don't think that's always, always bad either. I don't think so either. I think it can be really helpful to help kids find that motivation that they have and see that they're capable of doing something and enjoying it. It's fine. I think where it gets tricky is where the child consistently needs that extrinsic reward right. to do whatever it is. And I, I even see this today. And as kids get older on the sports field, mm-hmm. you score four goals today and I'm going to take you out and buy you that toy. And that is where, you know, I start. Wow. For teenagers even? Um, this These kids are going to middle school. You know, I've seen wow. it. It is that, you know. Yeah. And, and then we don't develop that intrinsic motivation and confidence. And then there's such a disappointment when you don't. Mm-hmm. And here now we're looking at kids getting older where if you, you, the whole game, you get a goal, that's a big deal, right? So 
um, they start to develop their own self-perception and self-worth based on whether or not they can accomplish what needs to be accomplished to get their reward. And that's where it gets dangerous. Right. And it's not always or even often possible to accomplish some of those goals. No, no. Yeah. And then defining that failure based on someone else's arbitrary goals, that feels that's right. Scary. Right. The yeah. effort and that you put in and what you did do when you were out there. Right. Or having fun, God forbid. Having fun. <laughs> fun. That's right. a novel concept, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. And the next question. In my observations, my husband and I are way less accommodating than many of our friends. I also have the impression that our kids are less anxious in many ways. In my gut, I've wondered if it's because we tend to give them less choices and often push them out of their comfort zone. I also joke to myself that someday my kids will be in therapy from us pushing them too much. It's de- it's a fine balance, and I definitely rely on my gut, and sometimes we make mistakes and have to apologize for pushing too hard on something. But I do feel strongly as I watch what feels like more and more kids tend to be hesitant and nervous. Mm-hmm. Well, we are seeing anxiety at record proportions, you know, in young people and in teenagers. We have seen a trend for kids to go to college and want to transfer right away. Mm. Part of it is, is it anxiety or is it lack of resilience? Because they haven't had to work through anything because we've accommodated it. Julie Lithcott-Hames writes a lot about this and how to raise an adult and mm-hmm. the idea of helicopter parenting. And there is a fine line Yeah, um, when we're having this discussion in that helicopter parenting, kind of accommodating for the child for whatever it might be. Um, but it was funny. She said, I'm worried my kids are going to say, your kids are going to therapy for some reason. Or other. <laughs> right. We should all accept that at some point and that's okay. Yeah. It's not exactly true, but yeah. um, you know, you can't think- necessarily predict what is going to cause your kids to need therapy. Right. And, you know, I think her question at the core is, is it what we're doing that's mean is the reason that we have less anxious kids? And it's hard. You can't compare your family to the family next door because you were dealt a very different hand of cards. Your kids have a very different genetic predisposition, which influences how anxious they become. That's absolutely right. And and also, you know, I, I looked at that a couple different ways. Um, could it be that your kids just aren't as sensitive to having anxiety as maybe other kids are? Or are you, instead of the word pushing, are you setting boundaries that enable mm-hmm. them to thrive? That That's what I would say too, because sometimes when the parenting is very gentle, the boundaries are loose and, and we can't always see them. Um, and, and boundaries are, are really important for kids to be able to kind of know the space in which um, they can operate and feel safe and develop confidence. So what I heard when I was reading that was, hey, you know, we have set these boundaries for the kids and that has helped them to develop some confidence. It could be, it could be that, it could be a factor of both. We're dealing with genetics in terms of kids, the, na- the nurture of their environment as well may not have been as anxiety provoking as perhaps another family. You know, we have research to show that even in rats, when an environment is unpredictable, kids develop or rats develop anxiety and even depression. The same is true for humans. Mm -hmm. So maybe that environment that that woman had pushed the child in was a more predictable environment for the children. 
than an environment where kids are pushed, where there's a lot of unpredictability, whether it's family stability or economics or other social factors. So the next question, so this actually comes from a friend of mine and her, just a little background, her um, family, their, their neighborhood, they live in the Midwest was just um, hit by a huge tornado. There's actually a video of um, that was on the news of the tornado going through the neighborhood and you can see her house and her house was probably like four houses away from the tornado, the, the line that it hit. So they were unharmed, but the entire neighborhood was wiped out. Wow. So she wrote, my son, who's now seven, has been insanely anxious about any and all weather since the tornado hit our neighborhood. Ooh. Harmless clouds scared him every day. And you can't respectfully accommodate that fear if you want your kid to ever leave the house. My husband has been really big on getting him to go outside and observe and look at the clouds, even when he doesn't necessarily want to. He took him out on an errand to the hardware store last week, and they got caught up in a thunderstorm. It was a great opportunity for him to be out in the weather when, with someone he loves and trusts to help him see that it's safe. We've also been learning about clouds together so we can name and identify them. He's very slowly transitioning from fear to curiosity, which he would have not done if we just respectfully let him to stay inside until he was no longer afraid. Mm. I love that fear to curiosity. Right. Yeah. I love that. If we nailed that one. Yeah. <laughs> encourage our kids yeah. to follow their curiosity and show that that fear comes from not necessarily having all the information we need to make decisions that we need to make. Yeah. Um, when, and when I read that, I felt like that sounds like a little bit of PTSD. Yeah. Oh, for sure. As soon as you said the whole neighborhood was decimated, that's a traumatic event. It sounds like they did some informal exposure therapy, yeah. right? Just And by happenstance being caught in a storm and then being able to um, you know, sit there with someone who you trust and love, which is what we do in exposure therapy as well, to be able to kind of acknowledge the feelings that come up, talk it through and change it in terms of, you know, being put off by the fear, um, start asking questions, develop the curiosity. And I think that's really important when kids are fearful, that we encourage them to ask questions mm -hmm. and think through it a little bit differently. And be, be able to answer them or find out answers for them if we don't know as parents. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like she did she did some good exposure therapy or a version of exposure therapy and also some psychoeducation, right. you know, explaining how it feels to be anxious and learning more about the things that you're anxious about, unpacking that. Well, um, that normalizing of anxiety yeah. is so important too, because I think often as parents, it's alarming to us. Mm -hmm. And again, the child takes the cues from us that it's alarming or it's an inconvenience and we just have to work through it or whatever it is. But instead of sitting with it and saying, you know what, a lot of people have this now and, and it is normal. And you know what? There's still people who have really high levels of anxiety that still work through, can work through it and do the things that they're actually scared of. So let's figure out what we need to be able to do that. Yeah. And, and I guess thinking about when your child should have some professional support or when you should have some professional support, which is always a question because so many kids are suffering and so many adults are suffering, especially from anxiety right now in the year 2022, that it's sort of like, when, when do we cross that line, right? Like this child was able to be coached out of the house 
with the parent's support. Now, if that child could not have been coached out of the house with the parent's support, then that I would say would need some professional intervention. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Because the child has to leave the house and you as Mm -hmm. parent to leave the house too, I'm assuming. So um, yeah, at that point, you're at a level where you need some support, either for you as a parent to know how to help the child differently, or actually have a professional help your child in that situation. Right. Yeah. And I do say with kids too, and I have noticed this um, in practice, the sooner we intervene, the the shorter the process is going to be to get them to a level of functioning that is healthier for them. And part of that is because of these neural pathways that they develop. Now, kids' brains are so neuroplastic. So they are developing those pathways at a much higher rate than we do as adults. And those pathways can also be corrected a lot faster. So, And we know that cognitive therapy is very effective for many anxieties that kids face. You know, Sometimes mm-hmm. you need exposure therapy, but cognitive therapy is a great start. So the sooner we can intervene into that thinking, um, the sooner we give them the tools to manage it themselves, and the sooner we stop those pathways from getting stronger. Yeah. All right. Next question. My daughter, almost four, is terrified of the theater. She's an anxious child, at least compared to my oldest. And we've had to leave the theater twice because she started panicking as soon as the lights go dim and the music starts. Uh Always wholesome shows for kids. I've wondered if leaving was the right thing to do. Although sitting there forcing a terrified child to sit through the show seems disrespectful and heartless. Still, should I push more? Will she be ready when she's ready? So she could be ready when she's ready, right? Mm-hmm. She may be 15 and say, hey, I want to go to the movies. <laughs> right. And is that going to impact her life or her family that much if she doesn't go to the movies? It really depends on how important this particular situation is right. to you. But also what we are doing is validating a certain fear. So that can then translate into other situations. And, and when we think of it, anxiety in many ways, and this is why exposure therapy works, it follows a type of bell curve. And generally, we're at the top of the curve when that anxiety is heightened. If we can stick it out, it's going to come down. At some point, we can't sustain that level of emotion for a long time. But what happens is when it gets to that heightened spot, everything in our brain or body is telling us, get out of there. Mm -hmm. So we never experience that coming down from it. So if we can even say to the child, hey, what do we need to feel safe in that situation? Maybe it's something soothing. Maybe there's something that that child might enjoy that we can bring into the theater that makes them feel safe. And can we start extending that time that they're able to to stay in that theater comfortably, knowing that when it gets really bad, you know, you tell me and then we'll go. Maybe if they have a certain measure in their mind, hey, when we start to feel like this, we're going to try and stay for a whole minute and then we'll extend it a little bit more. Now that takes work, you know, and a lot of movie tickets. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) is it worth it to you? Right. How important is it? How important is it? Can we role play it in our own home to see do those feelings come up when we're in this dark situation? Watch. Can we can we practice it at home several times and then say, hey, you know what? You did this at home. You can do this in the theater. Yeah. And then are we getting to the underlying causes of why is it that it's coming up in the theater? Is it the dark? Is it the fact that it's a public place? Are there other things that she's been exposed to 
um, stories that have made it difficult for her to feel safe in that environment. I mean, that I would say is really important just to explore that fear. I would wonder when I read this, I would wonder if this is a sensory sensitive child. I have a sensory sensitive child who is not super comfortable in movie theaters. Um, And interestingly, we went to a large movie theater last weekend and it had Dolby surround sound, which almost feels like kind of like that. I don't know if you've ever been in a 4D theater where like water spits out at you and like there's like... Feel it in your body. You feel it in your body. And so we went last weekend. Not I didn't know my husband bought the tickets. We didn't even think about it really. He does okay in the movie theaters, but I can tell that it makes him a little bit uneasy. Mm -hmm. Um, So we went to, it was a really large theater. Usually we go to, we have a little tiny local theater that has like 20 seats, which is perfect because it's not overwhelming. Um, It's, it's really lovely, which that would be my first recommendation is find as small of the theater as possible. Um, But when we walked in this big theater, the screen is just massive. It wasn't a 3D movie, but that surround sound, the minute I sat down and I felt like the thump coming through the seat, like I just looked over at him and I could see him gripping Mm -hmm. the, the, um, armrests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, my thought on that was just, we're not going to do the surround sound for him. Like there's no reason for him to really be exposed to that and adjust to that if that makes him uncomfortable. And that's not that important to us that he enjoy surround sound, you know? So I think, and I do think that some parents are like, oh, I need to toughen my kid up and they need to be able to handle this. And I'm like, but it's, it's not enjoyable. And I don't think more exposures to that is going to be enjoyable. So in a situation like that, I think we also just need to be cognizant of our kids. And I think when you yourself have things that make you uncomfortable from a physical perspective, if you have some sensory sensitivities, you're more likely to to accommodate your kid for those things. Like I don't like 3d movies at all. Mm-hmm. Like I just don't enjoy them. I don't know why it's, I can't, I can't put my finger on it, but I don't enjoy putting on the glasses and going into the yeah. theater. And some people do. And I, I'm, I'm good. I just would like to watch the regular old right. plain flat screen, not popping out at me. Um, and I think because I've had that experience as a human, it's allowed me to be more sensitive to him sure. and and he also doesn't like 3d either and not that we've ever discussed it it just kind of happened that he also doesn't enjoy that but i think it's hard as a parent if you don't have sensitivities or if you don't have experience with anxiety it can be hard to know oh it can be very hard and i would say that was the case with my parents too they didn't have all that much experience with anxiety they were immigrants here they're physicians they were busy so Um, I remember having to figure out how to work through that, um, you know, on my own and the fact that everybody else felt very comfortable doing things that I was anxious about. So I I think that's a really good point just in terms of the sensory piece of it. And there are many theaters that do sensory sensitive productions. Mm -hmm. I know our theater in Ridgefield does. They show movies for people who are, you know, have sensory issues. So I would try that as well to see if that is a different experience for the child. But again, like you said, try different settings, try at home, just to kind of get to the heart of what is it that's creating the fear, perpetuating the fear. But that's that's a very important point. Right. And I think that um, that importance piece is always something we have to be evaluating. How important is it that our child adjusts to this? And particular situation. 
Right. And sometimes I think we as adults can get stuck in these arbitrary situations where we're thinking um, that that we do just need to kind of quote unquote toughen them up and get them used to things that they're uncomfortable with when really that thing like the swim test, you know, it's not in the grand scheme of life. It's not really that important. But, you know, in this situation for us, it did mean pushing through that anxiety of cold water. And it's had a huge impact on the rest of our summer. Mm. You know, like we're going to the pool every day and he's going off the diving board and it's just been it's been night and day from last year. So I think in some situations, yes, it can have a a positive long-term effect. And then some situations, you know, like the movie theater, like, yeah, just don't take them to the movie theater, take them to a small one (laughs) or the the sensory sensitive one. And I think it's hard for parents not to get caught up in Mm -hmm. what other families are doing and not to compare in that you kind of go 10 steps ahead. So if all their friends are going to the theater and then my child can't, how's that going to impact them? You try not to jump too far ahead there, but yeah. stay in the situation you're in and do what you can to explore it first. And there are many other situations where your kid can connect socially outside of a movie theater. Right. And, and that it might be come to the point where they're in middle school and then they have the motivation to get through it because mm-hmm. their friends are going to do it. Together. Absolutely. Yeah. That peer support. Mm-hmm. You'd call it peer pressure or peer support. Peer support. Look at it one way or the other. Right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today, Nero. Tell us where we can find your podcast, your book online. Oh, where yeah. we can find you. Okay. So my book just came out a couple months ago. This book won't make you happy. And that's in Barnes and Nobles or anywhere online where you buy your books, you can find it. And that's about finding contentment and our and how it's different from our cultural definition of happiness. Um, and you can find me at my website, neurofeliciano.com, and on Instagram at neurofeliciano. My podcast is called All Things Life, but all of that information is consolidated on my website at neurofeliciano.com. Great. And I will put that all in the show notes too. Thank you. Thank right. you. It's Thank always you so much. much to chat with you. Happy to have you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Nero. If you want to get in touch with her or some of the links to the things that we talked about, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 319. The podcast will be on break for the month of August while I'm traveling, but I'll be back in September. Please take a moment to leave a rating or review for this show. I'm so grateful for your support. Thanks for tuning in. I'm so glad you're here.